This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Caron speaks with Professor Maurice Stuckey about the rise and rise of dataopolis. The internet, no doubt, had great promise. And one of the promises was how it would supercharge competition. <laughs> we thought that as well. And we then looked at it more closely. And what we found were several disturbing trends with the new online economy. What if these algorithms then could monitor each other's prices, and what if they colluded? Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. Around the world, there's vigorous debate about the domination of markets by a small number of big players. And the discussion has been sharpened by concerns relating to super platforms like Google and Facebook. Do we have the policy tools to preserve competition in the face of their market power? Scholars have been questioning the economic theories underpinning competition policy since the 80s. Have they worked? And will they work in the new economy? And politicians and policymakers are finally taking notice. At the heart of this debate is Professor Maurice Stuckey, a prolific legal scholar with a background in antitrust litigation for the US Department of Justice. Now he's been challenging the orthodoxy in this field for over a decade. His co-authored books on big data and competition policy and virtual competition have attracted enormous attention around the world. The challenges laid down in these books have prompted fresh thinking about the role of data and data analytics as a source of competitive advantage. They also highlight the risks in algorithmic collusion. Professor Stuckey puts this down to the rise and rise of dataopolis. So, should we be concerned? Let's start with a simple definition of the curious acronym GAFA. Sure. So GAFA refers to Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. And when um, Alan Grunis and I were writing um, our book, our daughter came up with a term dataopolis. You know, she thought of it as almost like the monopoly character, but dataopolis. And I thought this was a more accurate reference because dataopolis have economic significance. They also can have significant power once you look beyond the veneer. The use of opoly at the end seems significant, Maurice. Does it link between the data giants of our era and the giants of the industrial age, Standard Oil, AT&T? Right. It's, it's a connection about how big data can lead to powerful firms becoming even more powerful. So when we refer to dataopoly, we're referring to a company that often controls a key platform through which a significant amount of personal data is collected. But it's not just a platform. It's a platform that attracts like a coral reef, a whole ecosystem of users, of sellers, of advertisers, software developers, apps, and accessory makers. And as a result, there is a significant amount of personal data. So there's both the volume of data, the variety of personal data, and the velocity in which they can capture that data and harness it 
gives them then significant market power. We're going to talk a bit more about that power and its implications for competition policy. Let's step back first for a moment. Perhaps you could tell us about what you say have been the major developments in our economy to which you would attribute the rise of dataopolis. Yeah, we're at a really interesting point in U.S. competition policy. So we've had this natural experiment for the last 35 years, and it's basically the Chicago school and post-Chicago schools of thought. And what we're starting to see are dark clouds on the horizon for the older economy, that what we've seen is increasing concentration in many markets with a few firms dominating what we're also seeing is that uh, with this rise in concentration, increase in profits that are going to a handful of firms. So it's attributable more to market power than any sort of efficiencies. We're also seeing fewer startups. And we're seeing also how this is not only affecting us as consumers, but it's also affecting us as workers as well, that the upstream effects And there's interesting research by John Kawaka, among others, that have looked at, you know, all the available merger retrospectives. And it shows that maybe our antitrust policies were too lenient over the past three decades. And there were many mergers that were approved based on these merger retrospectives that there were significant price increases. And you also have growing wealth and income inequality in the U.S., So one thing is, is like, okay, we developed these price-centric tools, and they may not have worked that well in the brick-and-mortar economy. Now we're going into this uh, online world, and the price-centric tools don't necessarily work very well in the new economy. And they didn't necessarily work very well in the old economy. And so where does that leave then? competition policy. So we're, we're sort of at this natural uh, inflection point where we're looking back and we're starting to wonder, did we strike the right balance in our enforcement? And if our tools didn't necessarily work going in, in the old economy, I don't think they're going to necessarily work well in the new economy because they raise even additional challenges. Maurice, you referred to the Chicago School of Thought. Perhaps it would be helpful if you explained what you mean by that. Basically, what we've seen from the 1980s going uh, forward is several philosophies. One of them is the belief that markets are very good in self-correcting, that there is very little need for intervention, that more often than not, government intervention leads to false positives rather than false negatives, And by that, I mean, we're going to challenge mergers that are efficient, that will benefit consumers. So the Chicago School developed this curious thing of the consumer welfare standard, which actually really wasn't about consumers or their welfare. But it was a metric to say, well, we're looking out to protect the consumers and we're going to allow increase in concentration. We're going to allow firms to get bigger so that they can benefit from scale and scope economies. And then we, the consumer, should benefit as a result. And we really don't need to worry too much 
about monopolies and things like that because we're facing increased global competition. Entry barriers are often very low. And more often than not, competition will work itself out. So really what you need to worry about are cartels. Those are pernicious. Prosecute those. But don't really worry about monopolies. Don't really worry about vertical mergers where like a buyer or a seller integrate. Don't worry really about conglomerate mergers where two companies don't directly compete, but one might potentially enter. And then with horizontal mergers, don't even worry about six to five or five to four mergers, maybe four to three, even then you know, you could allow that and possibly even three to two in some industries. And industries have become significantly concentrated as a result. So there's this very vigorous debate in the U.S. about the levels of concentration and its implications. On the one hand, some attribute that to the Chicago School approach. On the other hand, there are those who defend the Chicago approach on various grounds. There's this look back that you've described, a a look back at the effects of the Chicago philosophy and how it's caused concentration. You've talked about the implications of continuing Chicago-style antitrust enforcement when we look forward at the new economy. But the centerpiece of the new economy is the internet, and many would argue that the internet has supercharged competition, promoting connectivity, information, innovation, What is it about the new economy that gives you pause to be concerned that there might be concentration equally in the new era? Sure. So the Internet, no doubt, had great promise. And one of the promises of the Internet was how it would, as you mentioned, supercharge competition. And Ariel Izraki and I, um, (laughs) we thought that as well. And we then looked at it more closely. And what we found were that there were several disturbing trends with the new online economy. And one of them was we're seeing firms relying on algorithms to set their prices. And one question we had is what if these algorithms then could monitor each other's prices and what if they colluded? You know, would the law be able to tackle collusion among algorithms. And this could be express collusion or it could be tacit collusion. So we developed several scenarios with that. And one thing we found with collusion is that our law is good at tackling some types of collusion, but not others. Then we looked at another scenario whereby these firms are collecting a vast amount of data about us, their ability to attract us, to give us personalized ads. And then we wonder, Is it going to just stop with personalized ads? What if they start providing us personalized offerings? And so then we came up with this notion of behavioral discrimination. And it differs from price discrimination in basically getting you to buy things that you may not otherwise have wanted at the highest price you're willing to pay. So tapping into your weaknesses and getting you to purchase something at a moment of weakness, pretty much at the maximum price you're willing to pay. And then the third area that we were concerned about was the rise of these data opolies. And 
you know, one analyst said that apps are worth millions, but platforms are worth billions. And these data oplies control like the super platforms in today's online economy. If you look at Amazon, they control the um, merchandise category. Both Google and Apple control the two leading mobile phone operating systems. And Facebook, of course, controls the dominant social network platform. And the ability to control those platforms give them significant power to affect their ecosystem. But surely power of itself is not a problem, Maurice. It seems to me in the new economy, there's inevitable disruption. There's uncertainty, fear of the unknown. Now, some businesses are going to embrace those as opportunities, while others might resist and try and preserve the status quo. We are clearly seeing that dichotomy in Australia in the context of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's inquiry into digital platforms and its impact on the news and media sector. So on the one hand, there's some news companies saying, look, we embrace digitalization. We're collaborating, partnering with the platforms. They can see the structural changes, but they look at them as opportunities then on the other hand, you have some news companies saying the platforms are using substantial power, they're engaging in anti-competitive practices, and as a result, the entire industry and its democratic function are facing existential threat. Those are two really different positions. How would you reconcile them, Maurice? Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> you could uh, say that they're both right, and, and here's why. Let me, let me just take one step back. So people are flocking to the platforms, and that might be a function of the platforms innovating, but it also might be a function of what we call network effects. And Facebook is a great example, right? So with Facebook, there was the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal came out, and this was one of several scandals involving Facebook. And there was this great public outcry. And there was this campaign, delete Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, came to Congress for two days of hearings in the U.S. And one of the senators said, Senator Graham from South Carolina, he asked a real poignant question. He asked Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who's your biggest competitor? Uh, Senator, we have a lot of competitors. And there he said, well, you know, if I buy a Ford and it doesn't work well and I don't like it, I can buy a Chevy. If I'm upset with Facebook, what's the equivalent product that I can go sign up for? And later on in that hearing, it was quite interesting. They asked Mark Zuckerberg if the delete Facebook movement had a significant impact so far. And it hasn't. And I think with the recent financials, what it also shows is that it hasn't had. Now, here you can say one conclusion is like, well, consumers weren't that outraged. And I don't think that's accurate. The other thing is it's this function of this network effects. So whereby basically the utility that I have is when other people are also on that platform. The more people that join that platform, my well-being or my utility increases. So with Facebook, the more people that are on Facebook, the more people with whom I can communicate, 
the better the platform is. Now, that's not necessarily a function of innovation by the platform itself. It's more of a function of other people being on that platform. So when I'm like disgusted with Facebook and their privacy policy and they're giving their data, I could decide to quit. But unless I can convince all of my friends, all of my relatives, all of like the school functions that post pictures on Facebook, all of the colleges that have Facebook for the children. So if you want to see your children's activities, you have to go on Facebook. Unless I can convince them to move to some other platform, I'm pretty much stuck then with Facebook. So that gives Facebook then a tremendous amount of power. Because if you think about it, without these network effects, if I could easily switch from like, let's say Ford was doing this, I could easily switch then from buying a Ford car to buying a GM car so my data won't be shared with someone else. And now let's apply that to the question you had earlier about the news organizations. And previously, the news organizations had their own sort of platform that they were bridging advertisers on one hand with readers on the other. It actually had a good effect on democracy because you might have left-leaning newspapers and right-leaning newspapers, but Generally, the newspaper wanted to get as broad a target audience as possible in order to sell them to advertisers. And it was very crude in today's measure. But it also then required them to be somewhat tempered. They had to have editors there to ensure that they were appealing, even for conservative readers, those that might be slightly more moderate conservatives, fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, and the like. And that had a mediating effect. But they would then use those readers to sell them to advertisers, and the advertisers would then subsidize that journalism, that most of the revenue came from the advertisers, and a significant amount, but generally in the minority, came from subscriptions. And now what you have is most of the young people are getting their news from the social platforms. The newspapers realize that they can't just stand alone. They can try to, but often they need to then be aligned with Facebook. They need to be aligned with Google. They need to be aligned with the major platforms because that's where the readers are going to get their news. So their fate now is intertwined with these dataopolis. The problem is the dataopolis are collecting now all of this data on the readers. And they're having much more information on the readers than the newspapers ever had. Because they can see where that reader is not only looking at which articles, but also where that reader is going to buy food, where that reader is going elsewhere online, what that reader is doing in their home if they have one of these digital personal assistants and the like. So they have vastly more information about the reader's than the newspapers do. What you've just said, Maurice, that's consistent with what some of the news companies are saying. They're complaining that the platforms are mediating their relationships with their readers, standing between the newspaper and the reader, and that involves a transfer of the control from the traditional-style newspaper to the platforms, which undermines the newspaper's revenue base. So I see how that plays out. But I want to challenge you a bit on this question of network effects. The basic idea, as you've explained it, is that a platform attracts customers and those customers attract more who then attract more. 
And in a digital environment, that might mean the platform grows explosively. It might reach a tipping point where the platform is the winner of the market that takes all. But surely, Maurice, network effects can work in reverse as much as they might lead to exponential growth. They might also lead to exponential decline. So let's say, what if Facebook was to engender such outrage in its customers that despite their loss of connections, they might decide to leave the platform and as a result, others would leave and more would leave and that would spiral downwards in the same way as the growth of the network spiraled upwards. Yeah, so you often hear that, that you know Google replaced uh, Yahoo in terms of search and Facebook replaced MySpace. The first thing to consider is the scale at which Yahoo and MySpace operated is different than the space in which Facebook and Google are operating today. That if you look at the number of searches that are done on Google today daily, and you compare that with, let's say, DuckDuckGo, it's, I mean, it's orders of magnitude far greater than what it was with Yahoo, that you're looking at over a billion users on Facebook today. So it's really a question of scale. You're saying these platforms have now reached a supersized scale that's going to be insurmountable by any newcomer. Yeah, and it's not only that, I mean, okay, so what, one thing is that we, we have like some natural experiments, and one of them is when uh, Bing tried to enter. And Bing, of any company, was one of the ones that you would likely bet on because it already had an operating system, Microsoft. It could use, leverage its um, operating system, which is still you know, powerful for PCs. And it was a recognizable brand, right? And Microsoft also had the financial wherewithal. They spent billions of dollars on Bing. And yet, despite that, Bing still lags significantly. I think in the EU, it's less than 5%. And so then you ask, well, why is that the case? And here, you've got several things that are going on. First of all, it's not just one type of network effect. You actually have potentially, there are five different network effects in the online world, and they can each reinforce one another. And the second thing is that when you're looking at these platforms, it's not just now Facebook having its social network. It's also Facebook leveraging the data it's getting from WhatsApp and from Instagram. So one of the ironies was that some of the younger users say, you know, I'm going to leave Facebook and I'm going to go to Instagram. Well, that's part of the same um, corporate entity. So here they're leveraging their might, not just with particular platforms that they have, but other platforms as well. And the data that they collect from these other platforms give them an advantage that, let's say, a newspaper or a television station just doesn't have. I mean, there's no comparison between the two. Let's leave competitors aside and, and talk more about consumers. The problem for consumers as you describe it, is essentially a lack of realistic alternatives. Now, in terms of consumer welfare, competition is largely preoccupied with a problem of high prices that market power would generate. But here in the space we're talking about, the price is zero. Consumers are getting these services for free. 
Where's the harm as far as consumers are concerned? So I, I actually have a, an article, a short article in Harvard Business Review that outlines eight harms that these dataopolies can cause. And I think this is one of the Achilles heels of competition policy. Generally, competition law over the past 30 years has migrated to what's quantifiable. So we've become very good in assessing price effects, or at least developing tools to assess price effects. But even that, you see this uh, schism that's developed, that we're very good at identifying, let's say, how a merger might enable the company to unilaterally raise prices. But even with sort of coordinated effects, we're at a loss. So we're very good at trying to quantify things that are measurable, such as price. But things that aren't measurable, like quality or innovation, there we're sort of at a loss. So for the last 35 years, we might mention innovation. There might be a few mergers that might be challenged on the basis of innovation. But for the most part, we're looking at how will this merger affect prices? Then when you look at these uh, data-driven industries, often the products are ostensibly offered for free, but they're not really for free. That you're paying with your data. You're paying with your privacy. And so one thing is we don't really have the tools, measurable, quantifiable tools, that if Facebook acquires WhatsApp, for example, what would be the impact on consumers? It's not going to be price. In fact, Facebook eliminated WhatsApp's price. But the dimensions they did compete are nonetheless important for consumers, such as privacy. And here, one shortcoming of antitrust policy is that we don't really have these tools to assess what would be the impact on privacy, what would be the impact on these companies maintaining or increasing their market power in other markets, and what impact this could have on our democracy and the like. Because those are generally like, well, we can't measure it, so let's just not even address it. And, and that's a real blind spot for competition policy. So I guess a question for all of us is, how much is our data worth? Once we understand that, then we might have a better idea about what a free platform actually costs. Professor Stuckey will be back soon on Competition Law to explore the real cost of platforms, not just for consumers, but for other businesses in more detail. In the meantime, I've included a link to Maurice's article in Harvard Business Review in the show notes. There's also links to the books we discussed and some of his other recent work. Next time on Competition Law, what is a platform? Professor Dick Schmlanzi from MIT Sloan School of Management is going to help us understand what a platform is, where platforms originated, and why competition law is having such a hard time policing them. Until then, you can find our blogs, resources, and links at competitionlaw.com. That's actually spelled L-O-R-E. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Mm-hmm.